0: All right, well, hey, good morning, Grace. It's good to be here. If you got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke today. Luke chapter one is where we're gonna be, and we've got an Advent text for our Advent season. So Luke chapter one, beginning in verse in verse five in, in just a moment. I don't know how many of you remember, uh, as a kid, it's funny the things you remember from your childhood, the first thing that you ever prayed for with just great fervency, something you prayed for really hard. I don't know, maybe a Red red Ryder BB gun for Christmas or something. And I remember the first thing uh, that I prayed for really hard, and it actually was kind of a serious thing. I remember being a little kid. I don't even know how old I was, but I remember overhearing a conversation between my mom and, and another woman, and they were talking about someone that they knew. I think someone from our church growing up who had, who had just received a, a terminal diagnosis, cancer maybe, I don't know what the, the condition was, but they were just talking about how sad it was and how this was just, uh, just just a horrible thing. And I remember as a kid, I've heard people talk about, well, yeah, we pray for stuff, we pray for God to heal people. And I had this thought, I'm going to stay up all night long praying for this lady Cause, because, one, you're doing a good thing, but also you're getting to stay up all night long as a kid. I'm going to stay up just all night praying for this lady and just see what happens. And I'm sure I didn't make it all night. I probably made it like an hour or something just in my little bed praying for this lady. And I, I, to be honest, a few days later, I forgot about it. Maybe a few weeks went by. And I remember being in a family conversion van. I don't remember if you I don't know if you had a conversion van. They were like rolling motel rooms with curtains. Ours had a coffee table in the back. And I was sitting in the back of the conversion van and, and I asked my mom like well, what about old so and so this this lady that you'd mentioned was had this terminal diagnosis and she said she said well you won't believe it. This lady like she went to the doctor and the original diagnosis was wrong. And she's completely healed. She's completely fine. And you would think, right, as a, as a pastor's kid, somebody who grew up praying, somebody who stayed up all night slash an hour praying for this lady, I would have said, well, guess what, Mom, right? I prayed for her. Apparently, I have the gift, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a television ministry. We can get a nicer conversion van, right? But I didn't say any of that. I didn't really even celebrate. I just remember thinking, hmm, that's kinda weird. And so I've thought about that a few times as I've prayed for other things in life. And sometimes there's an answer that's very clear and sometimes there's, there's not. But I've thought, why did I react like that? Why did I react like that as somebody who, who I think saw an answer To prayer in a really supernatural way. And I think one of the reasons is that for some of us, maybe you're like me, a healthy skepticism, what we sometimes call a healthy skepticism, feels safer. It feels more natural than a posture of supernatural hope. And you wouldn't think it would be like that. You wouldn't think it would feel better to have a posture of healthy skepticism. But for some of us, I think I can speak for myself here too. Pessimism, a sort of mildly pessimistic outlook, feels safer sometimes. Because we all of us know what it feels like to get our hopes up and to have our hopes dashed. And so sometimes a posture of skepticism feels it. and I know this from experience—not just in prayer, but in college football. And I, brought a, I brought a picture of my team. My team is not the—it's not OU, it's not OSU. It is the Kansas State Wildcats. And uh, I know for some of you, that's a painful thing to see up there, given what happened this year with OU. But. Uh, My team is Kansas State. We are not the best team. We are not even close to the best teams. But I remember watching the OU game this year, or at least following it, and we were up at one point, Kansas State was up, by like three touchdowns, just blowing one of the top teams in the country out of the water. And my reaction, sort of like the prayer, was not like, thanks be to God, but rather, watch how we're going to blow this one. Because you know as a Kansas State fan, it's just better, it's safer to adopt a posture of pessimism. We're probably going to blow it. Don't get your hopes up. And sure enough, we did everything in our power to do that until God intervened and pulled it out at the end. Pessimism sometimes feels Safer, And so the question I want to ask today for this series we're in, an Advent series, but also a series on the supernatural, is how do we embrace the supernatural? A supernatural God, a supernatural faith, how do we embrace the supernatural given that uncertainty or skepticism or sometimes just pessimism feels more natural to some of us? How do we embrace a supernatural God given that pessimism or skepticism sometimes feels or seems more more natural. And uh, the good news today is if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever been like me in that regard, you're not alone. Because the guy that we're going to look at today, the story we're going to look at in in Luke chapter 1, it's an Advent story about a guy by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, the one who would be the sort of forerunner To Jesus. And in this passage, Zechariah encounters God's supernatural power, an answer to prayer, something he'd been praying for, actually in the form of an angel, an angel that he can see and hear. But unlike Mary, Zechariah's response was not to trust it, he struggled to trust. The angel. And so I want to ask, what can we learn from Zechariah this Advent season about that wrestling match with uncertainty, with with skepticism? Luke chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, beginning in verse 5, it says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then get this part. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. This is God's word. We'll pick up the story in a little bit, the the, the resolution to the story, but I think here's a picture of the scene of Zechariah. It says the angel appeared to him. The angel spoke to him. He sees this supernatural reality, he hears it, and the irony for me—one of the ironies—is in this story, is that Zechariah has the very words of the Lord, and he doubts. The people outside the temple don't have any of that; they believe his silence. Zechariah has the words; he doubts. The people believe because of his silence. There's this this irony that what makes somebody trust and believe the word of God and another person question it or or doubt it? Probably many of us, we've had people who have seen and experienced more works of God than, than seems fair. I mean, God has shown up in big ways and, they, and we still have this posture of, of doubt or skepticism. Other people perhaps have not seen these incredible, miraculous works of God, but they're like the people outside the, the temple. They, they believe anyway. There's a, there's a kind of mystery sometimes to, to faith and, and doubt. But I want to focus really, this message is really focused on one, one line, Zachariah's question, the first point. And his question is, how can I be sure? That's the question he asks to Gabriel. In verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure? After all, my wife and I are super old. That's my translation. And Gabriel, if you remember, Gabriel just kind of goes off, right? Gabriel is frustrated. He's like, do you know who I am? Gabriel says. It's as if he's like, there's two problems, right? First, you doubted me. Second, you brought up completely on your own how old your wife is, which is never a good idea. And so the punishment is just like, I'm going to give Elizabeth a little bit of a favor. You're going to be silent for nine months, right? A little early Christmas present silence. And I think in some ways, this question that Zechariah asks, it seems strange because he's looking right at an angel. But in the modern age, how can I be sure? Zechariah's question has become the question. How can I be sure of what I believe? There's a a Canadian philosopher, I brought a picture of him, a guy by the name of Charles Taylor, and he's a a Christian, and he writes this massive book, an 800-page book called A Secular Age. I, I don't really recommend it. It's big and dense. But one of the things he says is, modern society, modern life, has turned tentative belief, holding your beliefs very tentatively, into a virtue. It's now seen as almost like a virtue to just sort of sit on the fence and to hold all of your beliefs very, very loosely. And so he says, what it means to live in an increasingly secular age, to live in a secular age, it doesn't mean that that nobody believes. That's, That's not what it means. But rather, what it means is that both belief and unbelief are now contested. They're now contested territory. And so the believers also struggle with doubt and the doubters also have this longing for something more, he says. It's an age that's characterized by doubt and longing. It's an age that's characterized by faith and questioning. And he says that's part of what it means for a lot of people to live In a secular age, how can I be sure, Zechariah says to the angel. I think one of the things you could say to sort of sum up this text, this message is, we, in many cases, want proof. God wants trust. We want proof. We want this form of certainty that's just sort of two plus two equals four. God wants trust. The, the Greek word here that is translated as belief. It's epistusis. It's also translated as trust, as faith, as allegiance. God wants trust. Zechariah is looking for proof. And I wonder how many times that we're like Zechariah in that regard, that we want to make an idol out of proof, an idol out of that form of certainty. And God is in the business of tearing down those graven images. And I, I can't help but notice that proof is an elusive creature. I misspelled elusive three times this morning. Just want to let you know. I landed on the right one. Proof is an elusive creature. Because here's Zechariah, he is literally looking at and hearing an angel and he says, but yeah, I'm gonna need some proof. (laughs) And Gabriel's like, what are you talking about? Proof is like the proverbial carrot that life dangles in front of the donkey. We are the donkey in this analogy. And no matter how far, fast the donkey trots it seems like it's still out there in front it's an elusive creature proof is staring Zechariah in the face and he's like but yeah but how can I be sure if you've read the great Gatsby proof sometimes it's like the green light that Gatsby looks at that seems to be ever receding proof is an elusive creature modern society wants proof God is looking for for trust. That's one of Zechariah's challenges. It's one of our challenges, I think, but I don't think it's the only problem in the passage. The second second thing in your outline, Zechariah's problem, and we could get sort of judgmental at Zechariah. After all, he saw an angel and doubted it, but the scriptures say several things about this man and his wife, Elizabeth, that are actually words of Of praise, and if you had to ask, what is Zechariah's problem—the thing that makes him uncertain or doubt—it's not a lack of righteousness. Verse six says he was exceedingly righteous. It even says he was blameless. He he kept the commands of God. So his problem is not a lack of righteousness. It's not even a lack of prayer. In verse thirteen, it talks about how he had prayed repeatedly for a son. He's a righteous man. He's a a praying man. It's not a lack of supernatural revelation. He's staring at an angel. It's not like God didn't sort of meet him halfway. And so what is his problem? I think for Zechariah, the problem for his faith is, is for some of it's the same problem we have. It's years of painful, childless experience. Years of painful experience, years of praying and not seeing any answer. And it's as if he's saying, Gabriel, you don't understand, right? If I believe you that me and my old wife are going to have a child, then I open myself again to the most excruciating pain, the pain of getting your hopes up again and possibly seeing them dashed. I've been there, so you better not be messing with me. That's the sense that we get from that question. How can I be sure I can't handle any more hope? I've given up on this dream. Hope is a dangerous drug. That's what I think lays behind that question that seems so weird. On the surface, the sense that if I believe you, God, what happens if my hopes get dashed? How can I be sure? John Chrysostom, not a last name, it's a nickname, John the Golden Mouthed. Apparently, he was a good preacher. Fourth century Christian. He says this about the passage He says that Zechariah looks at everything else aside from the Word of God. He says Zechariah looked at his age, his gray hair, his body that had lost its strength. He looked at his wife's sterility. He looked at everything except the Word of God. And he refused to accept on faith what the angel had revealed. How often do we do that? How often do I look at everything except for the word of God my my circumstances my my sin my my frustration with life he says that Zechariah takes his he's like Peter sinking in the in the waves he takes his eyes off of the thing that's right in front of him and it hurts his ability to believe and for some of us, that's, that's where we're at. Some of you, are, this Christmas season, Christmas is a difficult time of year for some folks because you see all of the festivities, all of the celebration, all of the families. And for those wrestling with deep pain, wrestling with unanswered prayers, it can be a season of immense difficulty because you feel a bit like Zachariah, and Elizabeth, where it's like, God, you're showing up all around, but but where is my my miracle? Where is my proof? What I love in this passage is that God provides an answer to Zechariah. He provides a gracious solution. But my sort of weird theory is that the solution starts before Zechariah even sees Elizabeth's belly begin to get larger. And so let's reread God's gracious solution. I think the proof in some ways for Zechariah is in the penalty. The proof is in the penalty. Verse 20 says this. This is Gabriel. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I don't know how many times for you, God has shown up in the consequences of your unbelief and use those consequences to steer you towards himself. But what's interesting to me is what the penalty isn't and what the penalty maybe could be. It doesn't say, and now you will be dead because <laughs> you didn't believe me. Struck dead. Right? He had this thing tied around his leg. I don't know if you know that that they can pull the priest out if God strikes him dead. Gabriel could have said that. And now you will be drug out of here. But he doesn't. He also doesn't say, and now you will be childless. I was going to give you a son, but you know what? You doubted me. The deal's off. He doesn't say that. He says, and now you will be silent. The sign, ironically... Is silence. The sign that God is faithful is, is silence. It's what's not there, sound. And Advent, it seems to me, is a season of strange signs. Luke's gospel says this in the very next chapter the strange sign. And this will be a sign to you. The shepherds are told you'll find a baby. In a feeding trough. It's a strange sign. Advent's a season of strange signs. The sign is silence. And you could ask, why? Why is that the sign? Well, I mean, part of it, it like the punishment fits the crime. He's, he's saying stupid things with his mouth. And so God makes him be quiet. Amen. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think in some cases, maybe in a lot of cases, silence is the soil where God grows faith. Silence is the setting, it's the soil where God grows supernatural faith. But the problem is we live in an age that is stunningly, perhaps more than ever before, devoid of silence. Amen? Like, I can't even get, wash the dishes without a podcast in my ears. I can't even drive down the road without music. I can't. We, we live in an age where we are afraid of silence because silence brings us face to face with ourselves and with the reality of our lives. And so we live in a per, per, perpetual state of white noise. My wife and I, we've started on this road with our kids to get them to sleep because we have four of them and the house is noisy. We bought these little white noise machines and we have to crank them up louder and louder, right? I walk into my home and now I hear like ocean waves and wind and thunder and it's all the white noise machines. And I think in some cases that's how my life is too. Silence is the soil where God grows faith, but we don't want to be silent And so the sign, the gift that Zechariah gets for Christmas is to be quiet. And if you notice, he doesn't just, he's not just not speaking, but there are pointers later in the passage that he's not hearing either. Because people have to make signs to him. In the ancient world, deafness and muteness were connected. They were assumed to be part part of a package deal. And so God doesn't just stop his speaking, he stops the noise around him. Silence becomes the soil where God does a work in Zechariah's heart. It's not just the baby growing in the belly. A book I read this year, uh, again, that I don't necessarily recommend, is a novel by a guy named Cormac McCarthy. I don't know how many of you have read this novel. It's a violent, True, based on true stories from around the 1850s and the Texas-Mexico border. And it's a novel of, it's a very difficult story. It's a story that in many ways seems God-forsaken. McCarthy is an atheist, a nihilist. Some say the greatest American novelist living. But there's this quote from an ex-priest in the novel. And this priest, a guy by the name of Toby, says... That the voice of God is like the sound of horses grazing in the night. That's what God's voice is like. He says when the horses are grazing and the company is asleep, don't nobody hear them. But if they cease for a moment, every soul awakes. It's not the lack of God's speech. It's the constancy of it. And the fact that we are sleepy And that we like to drown it out. The problem is not that God is silent. But that his voice becomes like white noise. And for some of us we need to cultivate the discipline of listening. To the still small voice. It's interesting to me that Zechariah is likened to Elijah. The spirit of Elijah it says in this passage will fill Zechariah. And in the story, in the Elijah story, there's a tale in 1 Kings where he wants to hear from God. And there's this encounter and it says, in a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a whisper. And the Lord was in that. If you're walking through uncertainty this year, this Advent season, what would it look like for you to embrace a Zachariah posture? Zechariah posture, the discipline of, of silence, of prayer, of reflection. And to replace the question of how can I be sure... With some different questions. Lord, may it be to me as you have spoken. The statement of, of Mary. God shows up for Zechariah. The story ends like this if you've got your Bible, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. And they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak praising God i think in some ways for zechariah the naming was the claiming of god's word to him he could have looked back and said well you know it's i mean it's not a virgin birth Maybe this was all just, you know, part of the natural processes. Maybe I'll name him after me. But he yields to God and he says, his name is John. I'm going to trust the angel. I'm going to trust the supernatural work of God in spite of my initial posture of skepticism. Maybe, maybe for you this, this holiday season, this Christmas season, you need to reach out and and trust and say, God, I'm not going to just be constantly waiting for more proof. I'm not going to wait till all of my questions are answered. I'm going to yield to you right here. I'm going to practice the discipline of of silence, and I'm going to ask you to do a work in my heart. Let's pray together.